But judgment's coming again. It's going to be fire. They're stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The already is the flood. The not yet is the final destruction of the world by fire, where the elements themselves will be burned up. Another example of the already is the exodus. We studied the exodus as a people. And the plagues, you know, the frogs, the gnats, all these different plagues, hail, dropping and like crushing livestock. We got acquainted with those plagues. And when you read about the tribulation in Revelation, seven years of tribulation, you're going to find some similarities. In fact, if you put the plagues up like this and you put the, the works of the, or the events of the tribulation, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls as it unfolds, you're going, that looks familiar. And the reason is because this is the already of the Passover in Exodus. And the not yet is the tribulation when he returns. And when he says, come out of her, my people, the same thing he said to the nation of Israel, calling them out of Egypt. The already and not yet is a concept all over our Bibles. There's the old Adam and there's the new Adam. There's the old Moses, and then there's a prophet like Moses, which was Christ. Now, we're looking back at those things and saying, okay, those are, those are alreadys for us because Christ has already come. But for somebody like Simeon, who showed up at the temple every day, and the prophet named Anna saying, where's Jesus? That was a not yet for them, this prophet like Moses showing up, this new Adam. Alreadys and not yets are all over our Bibles. The old Israel... And the new Israel that's being gathered right now through the gospel that's being shared and sown all over the world. The already and the not yet. Now here's where I'm going with this. Here's why I want you to have this equipment before we go into this message. Because we're engaging this Sunday again another picture of heaven. A place prepared. And whenever we think of heaven, we automatically think of a not yet. We preach about it at funerals. Or we may have occasions where we preach about it as a people that thing that's going to happen in the future. But we never really say, okay, well, what's the already then? If already's and not yet's are all over my Bible, and yes, I anticipate that that place prepared that we talked about last week is a not yet, then where's the already? That's where we're going this morning. And if you write, if you take notes, and you've put a few already's and not yet's, in the place of this thing where we're going today, just put a blank line and a question mark because we're going to fill that blank in. And then the not yet being heaven, a place prepared. Okay, John chapter 14. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's speaking to a bunch of guys who've left everything to follow him. They've committed their lives to him, and they've been following him for three years. And, man, it's on. They've cast their lot with Christ, and their ship has come in. They think they're about to be sitting in his heavenly, or not his heavenly, his earthly court. And that all of the world is going to bow to all Israel because Jesus the Messiah is here. They misunderstood the whole thing, but they're thinking, man, it's on. And he's preparing them for bad news. In fact, they've already gotten a taste of it when the guy that's likely the most trusted among them, Judas, he didn't look like Sam Cobra, scowled all the time. Arr. This guy was the money keeper. He's likely the most trusted among them. And he leaves the table as the guy that's going to betray Jesus. And they're looking around going, Judas, he'd be the last guy I would think of. And their hearts are troubled. And he's also preparing them for some place where he's going, where he's saying, you can't follow me. So he's ministering to their troubled hearts with these words, let not your hearts be troubled. That's commandment, not a suggestion. 
He says, but you believe in God, believe also in me. And then the next verse where we've gone these last few weeks, he says, in my father's house, more words for a troubled heart. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Last week, We found that Jesus encouraged their troubled hearts with the assurance that he's going off to prepare a place for them. A place that we established last week. A place of relationship. A place of relationship with Christ. And a place that will be earned and prepared through the finished work of the cross. That's where we went last week. The hammer and nails have already been used. Remember, he's sitting down. Seated at the right hand of the Father as we speak right now. Enjoy him sitting. The work has been finished. Now this morning I want to show you that he wasn't just encouraging them with some future certainty of this future place prepared, but he's also encouraging their troubled hearts with an imminent reality. For them it's imminent. For us it's present. He's encouraging them with what we're going to fill in that blank that I told you in the already and not yet. The place where the question mark is, that's what he's encouraging them with. It will soon be seven weeks later there already. But for them, it's a not yet. Now what I want to point to or where I want to take us this morning first of all is that I want to remind you and make you appreciate that when we think of heaven, we often, even pagans, even those who don't believe in Jesus, all think they're going to heaven and they think of a future event. That's a very natural thought for us. People die in the future and they go to heaven. Now what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus was pointing to and speaking of primarily Not a future event, but an imminent reality. He's not primarily speaking of a future certainty. He's speaking of an imminent reality. Listen to this. Just think of the timing of this. We engaged this last week, and it's kind of lost in the passage because it's been so poorly handled for so long. But just consider the timing. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. For ages, most of us are envisioning Jesus off with his tool belt and his hammer and nails. He's up there right now. Keith Green sang about it. For 2,000 years, he's sawing. I hope John likes his room. <laughs> We've envisioned him up there about this work right, right now, but the reality is, is I go to prepare a place for you, and then just a few hours later, he's going from trial to trial to trial, from beating to beating, from beard being pulled out of his face, from being spit on, He's going just a few hours later to make the payment to prepare the place he's speaking of. Just a few hours later. Just a few hours later, he will step into the holiest of holies with his own blood. And he will reconcile that place for us. Just a few hours later. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then just a couple days later, he's going to complete the victory by leaving a tomb especially vacant. Yes? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then just seven short weeks later, the church is born at Pentecost in the very same city where he's crucified. 
seven weeks later. If we're short-sighted, if we're short-sighted and simple, we may find ourselves dreaming of some future certainty without looking for the imminent and present reality. Not realizing that we're experiencing enjoying the already right now. Today we're going to consider this place prepared further through maybe this new paradigm of the already. Is it something that we can experience right now? We're going to build on last week's points. Last week was like a lob. If you play softball, that ball is just up in the air. This week is just a crack it out of the park. When you connect last week with this week, it's the alley-oop where the ball is in the air above the net. That's what's about to happen. So I hope you're ready for it. First one. Last week we established that this place prepared will be a place of relationship. Remember, he said, in my father's house are many rooms, and the emphasis is not on white columns, mansions, embroidered pillows. The emphasis is not on this physical thing. The emphasis is on the ample space for all 11 of you jokers. In my father's house are many rooms, 11 dudes sitting at this table, and those who I beget through you and your ministry, my father can put you up. In my father's house is ample space. The concept is like a friend says, hey, dude, why don't y'all come stay at my house? And you're like, oh, okay, cool. We'll come over and we'll spend a night and we'll just hang out together. The emphasis is on relationship. Contrast that with, hey, dude, why don't you come stay in my place I've got a room prepared for you. And you're like, ooh, I don't know if I like the thought of you having a special room prepared for me. (laughs) It's about the relationship. I want to come hang out with you. It's a place of relationship. And that's what's true of this heaven. This heaven will be like this. A place of relationship. That's the not yet. But now what's the already? The imminent reality. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You're going to need your Bibles this morning. That's right. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read the first verse, and while you're turning there, uh, we're going to unpack the rest of it, but just for the sake of giving you context, Paul writes in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, you might be amazed at how similar our age is with the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church had this mindset, a very Gentile Greek mindset that, hey, uh, we think there's a lot of gods out there and we want to make sure we don't make any of them mad. So we're going to worship all of them. The Areopagus is a great example of that. There's a statue for all the gods and then just in case they missed anybody, they got an extra one there to the unknown god. It's a lot like our age. We don't want to make anybody mad. We don't want to say there's anything absolute That's that's how they're thinking. And the way it's manifested, the way it's shown up, is that these Corinthians were guilty of sitting down at anybody's table eating food that's sacrificed to idols. In those sort of pagan worship rites. And they know it. And they're sitting on on it. (laughs) That's good. And yet they're also sitting at the Lord's table. So Paul is going to use this passage to help them understand really what's taking place. 
Listen to how it goes. Verse 15. He says, I speak as to a sensible people. Now, when you hear sensible people, think a church. He's writing to a church. He's not making fun of them right here. He's not belittling them. It's not kind of a sarcasm. He'd really seen them as a sensible people, believe it or not, if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now let me acquaint you with that word participation. In the original language, the word is koinonia, and the word means fellowship. It's the kind of thing that I bet a bunch of y'all are going to be doing this evening. Watching the Super Bowl. You're going to be hanging out with people, fellowshipping. And really, the premium, supreme fellowship is what we're doing right now. He's writing of koinonia. He's writing of fellowship. And he says, the cup of blessing dudes who are sitting at any table, eating any food, thinking that you don't want to make anybody mad, you'll just make all the gods happy just by participating in all of it. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia, a fellowship in the body of Christ? And then listen to what he says. He says, because there's one bread, and he's speaking of Christ there. There's only one bread, there's one Jesus. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. What you need to understand is that he's writing to a church about what Church is. He's writing to a sensible people, a gathering of people in fellowship, koinonia with the blood of Christ. We ran out last week. I'm really sorry for those who didn't get any. I hope you went and got some grape juice or something. He's speaking of fellowship with the blood of Christ, fellowship with the body of Christ to this sensible people. And because there's one bread, i.e. the body of Christ, we who are many, a bunch of individuals, become one body. And the thing that unites us is that one bread. That's what makes us one. He's referring to the church. Once individuals, now a koinonia people. Once a bunch of individuals, the many, now become one koinonia people. It's especially appropriate that Crosspoint's name is Crosspoint Fellowship. I love that connection. Fellowship. Because that's who we are. One people united by this one bread. And what I want you to understand here is that he's not referring to heaven. He's not referring to a not yet. He is writing about an already a present reality. He's pointing to the fellowship that the many have as one body, as those who eat the same food and share the same table. He's talking about the church. The place prepared that Christ speaks of in John 14, 2 is a place of relationship and koinonia. And we get a taste of that place prepared in the fellowship of the people of God, the church. If you hadn't filled it in yet, go ahead and fill in the blank. Because that's what the already is. The church. Just like the emphasis in heaven is not on the physical white column mansions or the we set up in the corner or the embroidered pillows, the emphasis is on the ample space. We've got room for you. That's the character of the church. Hopefully, when you're telling your friends about your church, you're not telling them about this green room or these straight pews. Man, they're so nice. They're so oakish. 
you can't tell them about our space because we don't have any. Hopefully you're not telling them about the colorful kids' rooms. That's not the church. That's not the carrot that we're sharing with people, our friends and neighbors and workmates. Hey, man, you got to come see my building. Just like the draw for heaven is not some white-column mansion, the draw for the church is not the physical structure. This building that we build out here is going to be no oak allowed. Because it won't be just as spartan as it could possibly be. Because it's not about the physical structure. Burn it down if it becomes that. It's about the people. It's better than oak. You're telling them about people and relationships and koinonia. You're telling them about fellowship. It's about a living people who can move and plant and engage and gather in any and every place with ample room to accommodate any and every family he brings to this fellowship by faith. That's the already. It's the church. Do you hear the net just going whoosh on the alley-oop? Do you hear it? You see the already, man? That net's just kind of fluttering. Three points. Heaven will be a place of relationship, and the church is a place of relationship. The second thing that we established last week is that this place prepared will be a place of relationship with Christ. That's the encouraging carrot for them. He says, I will come again and bring you to myself that where I am you may be also. That's a future certainty. Now what's the present reality? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a few thoughts with you before we read this passage. John chapter 14, where we're going to go in these next few months, Jesus tells them in his final hours going up to the cross, he tells these guys that he's about to leave physically. This is your last few minutes with me. And in this chapter, basically what he says is, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. And in fact, the Holy Spirit will come to be with you and he will teach you all things. He will help you remember, even in fact, everything that I've said. And he will be there among you, this Holy Spirit, to testify to what I've done and to what I've said. And he will bring all things into remembrance, this Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 refers to the Holy Spirit synonymously as the Spirit of Christ. Now, this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 14, this is the end of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And it's, it's not this weird blessing that you just kind of this nominal thing, or nominal is not a word, uh, routine things, kind of like saying sincerely. He's saying something profound here. Let's listen to what he says. He says, The grace of the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, koinonia, of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, be with you all. It's partly like a blessing and a prayer, but at the same time it's a statement of reality. The Holy Spirit be with you all now. The Spirit of Christ is among the church and in and of the church right now. It is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit today. It's a passage that I learned with my family a couple weeks ago, 
that's a couple months ago now. First John chapter 1, verse 3. Don't turn there. I'll just share it with you. Because it brings these first two points together. That the already and not yet, the already is the church. The not yet is this place prepared to come, this heaven. And that we get a slice, a taste of it right now. Here's a picture of these first two things. That it's a place of relationship and it's a place of relationship with Christ. First John chapter 1, verse 3. John writes, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. In other words, the things that we saw with our eyes, the things that we heard, the things that we experienced, seeing our Jesus die, seeing him live sinlessly, and we're proclaiming this story to you so that you may have koinonia with us, and indeed our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the church. John was writing about the church. Third thing that we established last week is that the cross prepared this place that we think about often as a not yet. He's not up there. He's not up there with a drill. He's not doing that. He's done. He's seated. And just like the cross prepared that place, the cross prepared this place. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a passage with you from John chapter 11. I want you to listen to the passage in John chapter 11. And then we're going to engage this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. I hope you all are tuned in. I hope you're not tired this morning. I hope you're not thinking about lunch. I hope that anybody's sleepy, like slaps themselves in the face. Listen to this passage from John chapter 11. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Crosspoint camped out here for about a year, John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He said, Lazarus, don't, don't turn here, just listen. Maybe you can wake up in this story. He cried out with a loud voice. He said, Lazarus, come out. It's a good thing he called him by name or the graveyard would have emptied. He called him by name, and the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now as a response to, to this, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. <laughs> no doubt. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Bunch of tattletales. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. Let's get together. We've got to talk about this. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, the smart one, I'm being facetious, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And John comments on what he said. John says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He prophesied that Jesus would die, not just for the Jews, but that he would scatter those, he would gather into one the people that have been scattered over geography, 
we got people here from Jordan, from Kazakhstan. We know believers probably through these guys and through others. we got believers from Africa that he would gather into one, these people that have been scattered geographically. But he's also gathering into one the people that have been scattered chronologically over time. This one work, this one cross has gathered a people into one. John is writing an editorial comment on the church. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, I hope you're woken up, because this is so sweet. This is such good medicine. Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. I thought, well, John 11 is 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is writing this letter of, of, of this Ephesian letter to a church that apparently has a mix of Jew and Gentile. I'm about to engage how unique that is here in a moment, how interesting it is here in a moment. And he's writing to the Gentiles saying, you guys were once called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. You just envision some proud Jew referring to a Gentile as the uncircumcised Philistine. Atone is what he's speaking out here. That's what he's speaking to. He says, remember those guys who once were called the uncircumcision. You guys, at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the Circumcision, which is made by human hands, by the way. Which is done in the flesh, Paul points out. He says, remember that you, you Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were foreigners, you were strangers, you were orphans. For Israel was God's chosen people. All you had was the Areopolis. Buffet of false gods. But now in Christ Jesus, you once, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself One new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, orphans, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul is writing about the church. He's writing about a crossways people with nothing in common who are reconciled by the work of the cross into perfect koinonia. So much of our Bibles, our New Testaments, is about reconciling Jew and Gentile. It's all over our Bible. How many times have you heard this preach? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The next phrase is, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Most of our New Testament is about reconciling Jew and Gentile, and that's what's taking place here. What you have to appreciate is that Jews and Gentiles could not have been any more different. They were so amazingly different. The Jew. The Jew had one God. The Jew kept himself from unclean things. Here's a little short list of some unclean things. Bats. Eagles. Eagles. Mice. That's no surprise. Yuck. Unclean. Snails. How about this? We have one of these in our house as a pet. A tortoise. We have a Russian tortoise named Boris. The Jew would have considered him unclean. A gecko. They hated lizards. They're unclean. So a gecko is unclean. A Jew had one God. They had all these things that are unclean. They obeyed their regulations about food and cleanliness. Now, the Gentile, on the other hand, had all those animals that I listed as their pets. (laughs) Boris, the Russian tortoise. Here's my pet gecko. And they're in the same church. The Gentiles had tons of gods. Or they had in their background. The Areopagus being a great picture of that. Multiple gods. They had been participating previously in orgies. You didn't hear that in the Jewish list. And they ate whatever they want. They're like us. Catfish. The Jews wouldn't have eaten catfish. That's dirty. It's the bottom feeder. We would have had the Gentiles would have had our geckos as pets. And the Jews must have been uptight, holier than thou bunch to the Gentiles. Think about it. You being a Gentile, having a pet gecko, sitting beside somebody that thinks you're dirty. They're the same church. Jews must have been an uptight, holier-than-thou people to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles must have been repulsive to the Jew. Any differences that we think we might have with somebody pale in comparison to these differences. They pale. In comparison. They pale to what now these guys have in common through the finished work of the cross. Because the cross broke down the dividing wall. Just a few passages I'm going to unpack. Look at verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He himself in the Greek, it's listed twice there for emphasis. He himself. It could just say, He is our peace. It says, he himself is our peace. There's no other source for peace like this that can bring those sort of completely different people groups together. Nothing else can do that. Not the village, not the arts, not music, not our environment, not a bigger government, not more legislation, not a better police force, not crime deterrent plans. He himself is our peace. Nothing else can achieve that. He himself is our peace. This meant something to them. In fact, that phrase, he himself is our peace, in the original language would read like this. He himself is the peace ours. There's a the in front of peace. It's called a definite article. As in, is there any other peace? (laughs) That's the peace, boys. I mean, that's it. It sounds like they must have talked about it. This is the peace that's reconciled an unlikely bunch of people. Gecko collectors and mice runner frummers. <laughs> what, what an amazing reality. 
And the cross achieved that. Peace in two directions. It achieved a horizontal peace between Jew and Gentile and everyone in between. And it achieved a vertical peace between God and man. And this word broke down, that it broke down the dividing wall, that word for broke down is in what's called the aorist tense. It means it is done. It's like past tense, but it's contained to a point in time, as in it's finished. When he said on the cross, it's finished. Brad has preached this a long time ago. We don't have to create peace among the people of God. It's already been earned. We just have to walk in it. I don't have to, me and the other elders don't have to come up with some sort of scheme for us to maintain peace. It's already been earned for us. And how was it earned and created? By the abolishing of his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace forevermore, a new reconciled humanity. And that new reconciled humanity is called the church. Nothing could bring Jew and Gentile together, but the blood of Jesus Christ did. Nothing can bring together tense racial divides, but the blood of Jesus Christ can and does. Nothing can bring together a husband and wife who are ready to choke each other. But the blood of Jesus Christ does and can and will. Are you seeing that cross-centric, amazing outcome? The cross prepared the not yet of heaven. And it has also prepared the already of the church. It's the church that goes in that blank. church that we enjoy now as a taste of what heaven will be. Cultural, racial, utopia. We won't find it here. But we'll find it here. Any and all reasons to separate and fight and divide pale in comparison to the main reason to come together, the cross and the empty tomb and a Lord so worth enjoying. That's what brings a people together I realize right now I was thinking about this it's been an interesting five years for me I've been in ministry you know, Christy and I have been in ministry far longer than the last five years but the last five years we've been in paid ministry kind of puts you in a weird spot letters that you wrote to people before you were in paid ministry had a lot more impact than they, than they do now because you're like oh that's just a bastard he paid to do that Somebody sent me an email recently and referring to this. Well, this is my business. I said, no, this isn't my business. This ain't my business. People reduce the impact of what I'm saying. And I realize right now you might be thinking, man, this is kind of a stretch. This is sort of a self-serving stretch for him to lift up the church because maybe he'd get a pay raise or something or at least it's job security to hold up a high view of the church. So I want to show you that this isn't a stretch. I want to show you this isn't gymnastics. Just a few verses. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Please do not disengage. Please do not. Just a couple of verses, and then we're going to finish. So don't get your gear together. Don't think about lunch. Just eat these couple of verses and see where we're sitting. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. 
Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Please notice the tense. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are in the kingdom of God right now. Now let me raise the bar a little bit. Just look over on a couple pages. Just the page before on Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes to the church at Philippi. He says, but our citizenship is. It doesn't say will be. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has, past tense, delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he has transferred us, past tense, to the kingdom of his beloved son. And right now we are citizens of heaven as we sit here right now. There's some all ready for us to enjoy right now. We think of heaven like a not yet, not realizing that we're all up in it. There's an all ready we're swimming in right now. Here's my favorite. Revelation chapter 21. So where we're going to go next week. Revelation chapter 21. Please see this. Revelation at the back of your Bibles. Chapter 21 verse 2. John is seeing a vision of what's in store. He's seeing a vision of the not yet. Okay, you getting a little glimpse of that? Listen to what he says. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. How many times have you heard me refer to this church and the church as a bride? I didn't coin that. It's all over our Bibles. Do a word search for bride. You'll find it all over your Bibles where God is married to his people. John the Baptist talked about it. That's not our deal. The bride is the church. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, this could be a definition of the church. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That could define the church. Here's the last verse. We just see it so clear in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me, John, come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He's going to show him the church. Right? So he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. He's speaking of the church. He's speaking of a not yet, but he's also speaking of an already, an already that we are part of. An already that we're engaging, that's engaging us. My burden as I prepared this message this week is the thought that how can folks 
hope to enjoy this future certainty of a place prepared of a heaven when they have little or no commitment or enjoyment to this place prepared. Most of Greenville thinks they're going to that place prepared, yet most of Greenville has no use for this place prepared. Something doesn't reconcile. If this is the already that's supposed to tutor us and teach us and ready us for the not yet, why do we have such a low view of the church? To hope for that heaven with no or little use for this, the church, reflects that someone has no understanding of what that even is. My hope for this people, for my family, and for this people, here's my hope. My hope is that you have a higher view of the church relative to just everything. Relative to work, relative to play, relative to stuff. Is it right to be spent on work in light of these realities? I don't want to be in danger of compartmentalizing you and putting you into a place where you see work as something separate from worship. But I want you to have a high view of the people of God, the church, gathering. Is it right to be spent on work with nothing for the people of God but leftovers? I've seen it in five years from good people. People that mean well. People that are sincere and conscientious. That are incredible workers in the workplace. And yet they come to church and they get the leftovers. Would that ever be appropriate? I've seen it too where people fall headlong into an activity. They're an incredible golfer or an incredible whatever, blanker. Dude. Put something in there that you do. But yet you dabble in the people of God? Do you want to dabble in heaven? I want to get all up in there, man. I want to be all up in heaven, tasting the fruit of it and tasting the fruit that comes from that tree, all different kind of fruit. Bathing in that river, crystal sea, walking down that street of gold, enjoying Christ. I want to be in the midst of it. How can you hope to be in the midst of that without being in the midst of this? If you dabble in this, how do you hope to get anything more than dabbling in that? Because that is this. And this is that. Man, I'm hoping and praying and begging for among this people, just a little bit lower view of heaven as in something that we can experience now and a higher view of the church as in heaven experienced now. I realize as I prepared this message and even as I'm preaching it this morning, I realize that for many the thought of church being a slice of heaven and a picture and a glimpse of heaven is a real shocker because your only experience in church has been a slice of hell. I know enough of you to know what your baggage is. The Lord has guarded me from this, but vicariously I've walked with you through that pain and that heartache. And while many of us have had those experiences, I would offer that they're likely settings where the word took a backseat to method where the word took a back seat to preference, where God's design took a back seat to power and tradition, we can't be guilty and shouldn't be guilty of throwing it all out. God can redeem even those situations. 
for a word-abiding, Christ-centered, grace-amazed, small-in-our-own-eyes people can truly be a joy. It could be a little slice of heaven. And I want you to know, after five years being here, that's the way I feel about this people. Christ among you amazes me. I'm shocked at the privilege of walking with you. If this is a slice of what's in store, I can't wait to be there. Because it is good. It's sweet. It's genuine. It's hard, isn't it? It's real. And it's just awesome. I'm thankful for this already. I hope you are too. Let me pray. Lord, what an amazing, amazing picture. Your place prepared is something that we can anticipate, yet it's at the same time something we can experience. Lord, I pray that this church, these people, have a higher view of the church and a more real current view of heaven, not as something just only to be experienced someday, but something to be tasted and enjoyed and savored now. Lord, I pray for those who carry a baggage of heartache from past church experiences. Lord, we pray first of all for those churches. We thank you that you redeem even problem periods in the life of a church. And we beg, I'm begging collectively for all the baggage that all these people in this room carry from all these different churches. I, I pray collectively for your hand of restoration, repair, redirection, in each of those settings. And Lord, I pray that this church, that you will walk us through periods that we may go through like that, and that they'll be brief if, if, if they exist at all, and that we can truly be this little slice of heaven, a genuine people, amazed by grace, on frail journeys with an amazing God, with our Bibles open, with a mouthful of it, with our arms gripped around each other, engaging each other, reconciled with each other as we're reconciled with you, standing amazed in that cross. Lord, I beg for that among this people. I pray that for the churches in our community. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We worship you now in song. In Christ's name we pray.